Hello, everyone, and welcome to the sixth episode of the American Association of Teachers of Spanish and Portuguese Metropolitan New York Chapters podcast. The title of this episode is The Role of Ethnology and Genealogy in Portuguese and Spanish Classrooms. My name is Dr. Alan Hartman, and I am an Associate Professor of Spanish and Italian at Mercy College in Dubs Ferry, New York, where I also serve as the Program Director of Modern Foreign Languages, the Director of Latin American and Latino Studies, and the Fulbright Language Teaching Assistant Coordinator. Before we begin, I would like to thank the other members of AATSP's Metropolitan New York Chapter Podcast Committee. These committee members are Professor Marilee Bierman, Professor Emerita at SUNY Rockland Community College, Dr. Liliana Soto Fernandez, Professor Merida of Spanish at CUNY John Jay College, Mr. Bernie Lopez, the Director of Communications and President of the AATSP Metro New York Chapter, Mr. Francisco Garcia Quesada, retired World Languages Department Coordinator and Spanish teacher at the North Rockland Central School District, and current R. Byrne Research Associate Project Assistant at Fordham University, and Ms. Rosani Hanau, a Spanish teacher in New York City at the High School of American Studies. The mission of our podcast is to provide pedagogues, students, Hispanophiles, and Lusophiles a platform for discussing key topics relating to Hispanic and Luso-Brazilian issues. Before we meet our guests, I would like to invite you to subscribe to our podcast, as well as visit our chapter of the AATSP online at aatspmetny.org. That's aatspmetny.org. You can also email me directly at ahartman.aatspmetny at gmail.com. That's ahartman. A.A.T.S.P.M.E.T.N.Y. at gmail.com, and I would be happy to speak with you. This episode, I am pleased to welcome the, to the podcast Dr. Sophia Beal, Mrs. Rosabel, and Ms. Catherine Scott. Sophia Beal is an associate professor at the University of Minnesota, specializing in Brazilian literature and culture. She earned her PhD in Portuguese and Brazilian studies from Brown University and was the Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow in the Humanities at Tulane University and the Department of Spanish and Portuguese. Sofia is the author of The Art of Brasilia, 2000-2019, and Brazil Under Construction, Fiction and Public Works, 2013, as well as numerous articles that have appeared in the Lusa Brazilian Review, Romance Notes, Hispania, Ellipses, Brasil Brasil, Estudos de Literatura Brasileira Contemporânea, Revista Escritos, and elsewhere. Sofia is also currently serving as the president of the American Portuguese Studies Association. Rosa M. Bell was born and raised in Panama. She holds a Master of Secondary Education and World Languages from Hawaii Pacific University, as well as a Master of Arts in Teaching with a specialization in e-teaching and learning from National University. Rosa began working 15 years ago with military families, special education students, multilingual learners, 
diverse multicultural populations, and the community in general in the education field. She is also a former but recent president of the American Association of Teachers of Spanish and Portuguese. Currently, Rosa serves as the Hawaii State Director of the Sociedad Honoraria Hispanica and has founded a virtual professional learning community on culture and diversity for educators. This professional learning community advocates for the integration of culture and diversity in world language classrooms and includes a cafecito cultural or a weekly television broadcast that is supported by Olelo Communication Media in Oahu, Hawaii. And finally, we have Catherine Scott, who is a retired New York City school teacher uh, who has taught for more than 20 years. Catherine holds a Bachelor of Arts in Spanish from Berea College in Berea, Kentucky, and a Master of Arts in Spanish Language and Literature from Boston University. During her studies at Boston University, she became especially interested in the contributions of Afro-Hispanic Latin Americans and Latinos, and has consequently been researching this topic for more than 40 years and often incorporated aspects of Afro-Hispanic studies while teaching. Sophia, Rosa, and Catherine, welcome to our podcast. Before I begin, I would like to offer brief definitions for the terms genealogy and ethnography. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary refine, defines genealogy as, one, an account of the descent of a person, family, or group from an ancestor or from older forms. Two, regular descent of a person, family, or group of organisms from a progenitor or pedigree. Three, the study of family ancestral lines. And four, an account of the origin and historical development of something. The same dictionary defines ethnography as, quote, the study and systematic recording of human cultures. Uh, it also relates to cultural anthropology in terms of social structure, language, law, politics, religion, art, and technology. And so there we are. Uh, so with that, I'd like to welcome our guests and, and open our discussion. Um, maybe just to keep going into alpha, basically alphabetical order, starting with Sophia, then moving on um, to Rosa, and finally Catherine. Uh, maybe we can start with a broad question, which is how can ethnology and genealogy be used to engage students in the classroom? Sophia, what do you think? Sure, thank you. So I think about these terms pretty broadly, but in the case of Portuguese, it's important not to just think that it's a happy accident that Portuguese is the official language in Mozambique, Angola, São Tomé, Príncipe, Guinea-Bissau, Cape Verde, Brazil, East Timor, Macau, and Portugal. And to help students understand that that shared language is the result of Portuguese imperial domination, which involved the decimation of indigenous populations and a global slave trade, and the Portuguese language, like the legacy of colonialism and slavery, is part of what connects the list of places that I mentioned earlier. However, that, that connection shouldn't be romanticized, and the Portuguese spoken in all those places shouldn't be seen as one 
homogenous language, but there we need to be able to to trace and think about and teach the way in which countries such as Mozambique and Angola and Brazil have transformed Portuguese in ways that express defiance of a hegemonic colonial European language. So here I'm thinking more broadly about genealogy, but thinking about the genealogy in terms of the line tracing the line of a language and how it arrived in different places and how it has transformed over time. Well, I think that's great, Sophie. And just my own experience with that is that, you know, we in the language classroom especially uh, have a habit of not just teaching history or not just teaching language or not just teaching culture, but we have to teach it all, (laughs) including art history, (laughs) everything that that falls under uh, that linguistic domain or anything that can be related to it. Uh, which makes, I think, the language classroom a very complicated but also very enjoyable place because it's one of the few places where students and faculty get to make these large connections. And so, yes, I think that especially in terms of ethnology, um, there there is a sense of really connecting these different elements um, under the, the, I guess, certainly the, the lens of what happened during the imperialistic and colonial pursuits of the recent 500 years. Um, and also understanding those cultures, how they manifest today as a result. Um, absolutely. It's a very challenging, but very important way of looking at it in the classroom. Rosa, is that your experience or do you look at it differently or how is it that you bring these things out? Um, well, yeah, I listened to what you guys said and, um, let me explain you my way to think about uh, the way to use technology and, and genealogy in my classes with my students. Um, the goal of genealogy and genealogy lessons is for me is to have my students develop the uh, research skills and how equally important is the students to learn to make connections between, in this case, I put as an example, as their own family stories and through their analogy. I involve the role history of the representatives that they have in there. For example, I used a couple of free sites, but one of my favorite ones is Jenny.com, where I got my students able to create their own family trees. And then from there, they enter in all the vital information that they need. Now, what I do to involve more uh, families is by students to um, integrate their own stories by interviewing their parents and uh, grandparents or even great-grandparents. And then from there, um, this would allow my students to integrate kind of like a media because they can do uh, different type of works and and be familiar with what they're doing and then while they are keep learning and and get more deep into what their stories are. And that's when we uh, brought over their own identity. Now, in my upper level class, we do more like a showcase of their genealogical and a genealogical findings. So they write narrative and their family stories and an analogy. And then um, this will help them to express themselves using, of course, the target language and as an older history of how they discover all, all this um, research or how they discover more about themselves and their family. For me, what I do, I just coach my students through these engaging activities always having in mind and be flexible that I respect and value their diversity. This is the way that I use 
uh, and engage my students in both analogy and genealogy. Thank you. Terrific. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that you've picked up on is, you know, just the family tree, right? Especially on the first level of language learning, I think these things are very common, you know, in both Portuguese and Spanish, the verb ser is the same, right? And sometimes to, to learn these different vocabulary words, who our family is, as well as to practice this irregular verb ser, um, it's great to talk about one's family, right? So in the language classroom, right, we have such basic things that like doing the family tree, talking about their family history, which is also important, not just because in it, it's meaningful. So it, it leads to semantic connections that then have longer return, uh, retention for in terms of the student and the material covered. Um, but it's also practical and it helps us use some of the, well, at least one of the most basic verbs and most important that's also irregular uh, in I think all of the romance languages. Um, and from there, we can grow and understand who we are in light of all of this, right? And I think, you know, just for, for clarity too, right, this ethnology is this comparison comparison that happens between cultures, whereas the ethnography uh, is when we really start digging into the background of these different um, cultures and so on. And, and all of this together, I think, happens most beautifully in the language classroom, especially in the Spanish and Portuguese worlds, which um, are so diverse, uh, they cover you know, between the nations that have a large amount of Portuguese speakers and Spanish speakers, we're talking uh, about three, almost four continents. And it's really quite something that have really large numbers of Spanish and Portuguese speakers. Um, Catherine, what's your experience? Yes, my experience, I usually do sort of an introductory kind of question asking students about family members and friends. We always in the beginning classes always do the family tree, but sometimes I will ask them about um, family members or friends who may be Afro-descendants. Uh, what about public figures? You know, in, in New York City, there are so many uh, Latino public figures that they may know. I'll ask them, do you have anyone as an elected official in your family that you might want to share with the class? And also, besides just um, Spanish-speaking countries, I do a quick survey of countries that are represented in the class because there's so many countries that may not be Spanish-speaking or Portuguese-speaking countries in our class. So that's how I sort of get into a discussion of families. And I will ask those students to do a family tree and talk about their culture and their family members. And this is just sort of a general kind of survey as we move into the topic that we are discussing. Terrific, and thank you. Um, yeah, since I'm, I'm curious, now we're, we're all looking into these things through the lenses of our family, as well as the different, or the students' families and the different cultures and so on that are manifested in the Spanish and Portuguese speaking worlds. And I'm wondering um, if you've seen a transformation really in how ethnography or genealogy have been studied or used as pedagogical tools over the years in your career. And if so, how, Sophia? Sure. I mean, if I, if I stretch this back to decades, to long before I was teaching, when I think about the Brazilian context, if we think about late 19th century Brazil, there was a... Romant 
politicization of genealogies in Brazil that often omitted or silenced the types of traumas and violence behind certain genealogies, especially those of indigenous and black women who um, might've been forced to have children with their masters um, during, during slavery in colonial Brazil. So that's something I think about. And I also think about just maybe more recently, we're thinking about the 21st century, expanded definitions of what family is. So often we think about genealogy as a bloodline, but as we think about a more inclusive understanding of what family is, certainly we can open up a family tree to look different than a traditional family tree would that would, so we can imagine people having a guardian who isn't necessarily their biological mother or father. We can think about adoption. We think about same-sex couples having children. So I, I think there's room there too, to think about different ways of defining and understanding family. Sure. Absolutely. And what those mean to different people today, you know, and, and, uh, Absolutely. You know, what you said just makes me think, you know, years ago, I had a relative who had told me um, when they were children in in Brooklyn and Italian Sicilian community, anyone who was older, it didn't matter if they were uncles or aunts, they received the word as uncle and aunt. And it was almost a sign of respect in, in their particular world. And I think that part of that is the fact that they had come to this country in an immigrant community where maybe you didn't have biological uncles and aunts, you had a whole support series where these people functioned as such. And so we can kind of understand uh, sort of a uh, family in a new way because of their own experiences of newness and immigration and so on. Um, Yeah, Sophia, absolutely. That's insightful. How about you, Rosa? Yes. Yes, I'm being experienced, but um, what I believe is that over the past years, the ethnography research has like irrevocably change markers and how school operates. But looking at neography design, which has facilitated this shift, I would say from psychological to social cultural understanding of education, I love this because it kind of like bring up the issues so that we have voice. See what I'm saying? That how I explaining yeah. this is like these new issues like culture, social classes, um, cultural knowledge, privilege, voice, contradictions, conflicts, all of this no longer can be ignored because now they are um, they are going up into the surface. So on the other hand, learning the important aspects of the, the uh, genealogies, it needs to be understand the connection with the family and the relationships. What I have found there is there is a sure age of research about the intersection between education and genealogy. But with that being said like that, over the course of my career, I feel that genealogies is like a, for the lifelong learners and then expand their education as necessary for they better understand the culture and the diversity. Sure. No, very interesting. And, and I know I keep returning to this idea of the basic classroom, uh, but my, my own experience has been that sometimes um, in dealing with something as basic genealogies, you know, who one's immediate family members are, extended family members are, sometimes that translates also into a homework or a task of something where they've got to maybe ask their their family, the larger family or parents or grandparents a bit more about their family history. And that's the first and maybe only time 
in these children's lives that they've actually confronted this, which is who am I, where did my family come from? And so even though we're doing it from the perspective of the language classroom, it's a very meaningful task that's, that is something that the students always remember in different ways. And I think what you're doing, saying, Rosa, about it becoming sort of a lifelong learner issue is true, especially in, on, on the podcast committee, we spoke about this with, with all the new technology and databases and so on that can be accessed through the internet, which of course, prior to 90s didn't really exist in the form that we know it today. And once the 90s came, all of a sudden there was the creation of all these different genealogical communities and uh, you know, RootsWeb and all these different um, ancestry.com, these different websites that would allow one to do personal research. And so, yes. Um, but I think too, that the, the question of connecting it to and into the larger cultural question certainly describes where we are I think collectively at the moment, uh, we're, we're certainly in wrestling with with notions of identity today. Uh, and Catherine, you have quite a bit of experience with this. How, how does this resonate to you? Well, um, while I was teaching, we didn't do anything. We weren't doing so much with Ancestry.com among my student population. I was more into making the class um, culturally relevant. I wanted the students to be more engaged and more participatory. So when they feel that the lessons relate to them, I got more engagement and more exciting. And this way, uh, more excitement. And they were excited about doing the work because you were always trying to say, how can I get this? And you know, everything was geared to student engagement, so I had to do things to make them feel like they were a part of the learning and they could relate to what was uh, being taught. So I think the transformation has been to work with colleagues in other disciplines. And I would do some work with the history teachers, geography, literature, math because I did a lot with um, speaking of the slave trade. I had them do some comparisons of statistics, you know, where the bulk of the Africans went to Brazil and South America, very few to the English speaking, um, say Caribbean and North America. So that, you know, integrated the math into that. And then we did uh, the history and geography, they would say, oh, you're not teaching Spanish, you're teaching <laughs> geography and history. And I said, but you know, that's a part of it. And they had, so I would get them some exciting projects based on their levels of, of knowledge and what they could learn. So my focus was more, you know, into getting um, improving student engagement and try to give them something that they could really get excited about. But we didn't do a lot with the, the ancestry in the classroom because mostly, you know, you had to pay for those and mostly adults uh, did that kind of research. So I was doing more uh, the kinds of activities that they could relate to well. And I like doing the cross-discipline kind of thing. Sure. No, absolutely. Uh, Rosa, did you have something to add to that as well? Yes, as, as I hear um, talking about their connections, I would like to add that um, the connections that I made in my classes 
they go very hands to hand with human rights and immigration. And I've seen this to really uh, engage my students and using the target language to be able to communicate all of those uh, debates that they have in with them. And um, it's also very uh, interaction in between them and how do they feel part of the of the historical and political and contemporary parents of migration and, and immigration. I just want to add it because I'm so excited about how how I been able to engage the student by teaching them what is exactly happening at this time, something that they can just turn the TV on and see what is going on, but in other classes, they didn't have it. But here they get the opportunity to do research, to explore and to also give their own opinion. Right. That's what I was trying to add in there. Okay, very good, yeah. And so current events, right? Tying in the world around them today and understanding it better. I think that absolutely, yeah, that's great. And that actually brings me to my next questions which is, you know, not just do you explore, because obviously you explore, but how do you explore connections among historical, political, and contemporary patterns of migration and immigration while teaching? Because those of us, you know, certainly, Catherine, you taught in the Bronx. Um, I, my, the, my student population largely lives in New York City, including the Bronx, mostly I would say from the Bronx or lower Westchester, uh, and I'm from Manhattan. Uh, and these are communities that have very large populations of immigrants. And most of our students are either first-generation Americans, if not themselves immigrants. And so um, maybe, Rosa, you could also bring us, I can connect back with what you were saying there, which is how exactly do you explore um, these different historical, political, and contemporary patterns of migration and immigration while you're teaching? Yes, thank you. Um, so I explore all connections among historical and contemporary patterns of migration migration and immigration in my classes. And this applies more to like using conversation about human rights, migration with immigrant stories projects. So that helped them um, to learn more about the aspects of United States immigration, past and present through their personal experience in when I have native speakings, um, languaging here as one of my uh, students, or um, also like if it was their parents who went through that. So each of my units of a study incorporates human rights as the framework, framework, I'm sorry, for understanding immigration in Latin America. So what I do while teaching is that I approach immigration through the lens of the human rights. And this helped me to assist the students to build empathy uh, and also encourage critical thinking and examine the root causes of long-term solutions. So when I'm teaching them the language, I use the more possible way of real world scenarios and also um, real stories. I don't, I don't bring them over fairy tales. I work with the reality. So if I ask them to go do research, they are also uh, obtaining real re resources that they bring it over to the classroom and it becomes a, a classroom, a super active classroom in which every day they come in like, oh, yesterday we were talking about this. Today we're going to debate this question or this person presenting or so. So it is about the exciting with using uh, real world scenarios and actual uh, real resources that the students then didn't even notice sometimes that they just speak in the language because they are so much desperate to express themselves that they will do what they have to do in the target language. 
to can express themselves. And I just back in here coaching them and helping with probably pronunciations or so. But it lose the afraid of I can't speak Spanish. I, I don't know how I'm going to sound, but they want to. So they with using this is what I always encourage all the teachers that I have the opportunity to talk with is give the students what is going on now and see how they going to react to that. So this this subject, this um not subject, but this units of a study it's been one of the more amazing ones that all of the students are always waiting. I have, let's say, um, one student, and then later I got the brother or sister, and they already know that I bring it over those type of um, lessons in which they want, they, they volunteer to participate. Terrific. And so your classroom is very directly meaningful to things that the students are interested and passionate about. Well, that's excellent, right? That's the goal of all classrooms, I think. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because we're, we're in such a dynamic field, I think that we have the ability to be relevant and then to force the students to figure out how to say it in the target language is even better. <laughs> and the, yeah. of course, like I said, with the semantic connections, it, it leads to long-term recourse. So once they figure out how to say something because they're passionate about needing to say it, they'll remember how to say it. <laughs> correct. That is correct. And I'll tell you a little bit more. I'm sorry if I'm extending sure. too much, but one of my favorite ones were when, remember when the um, Venezuela was having so much problem, people start immigrating yeah. to any, not only United States, but any other place in Latin America. Sure. We went through the whole journey of these people and they were leaving the, the moment of each one of them through, uh, we was using some YouTube videos and the last news and stuff. And they, they were, you know, they were trying to find a solution. They were building so much empathy and like really feeling that I got even students crying like, oh, I don't want to pass through something like that. So besides that, we create the whole map of Latin America and they were, they were, um, they were, um, what I can say, they were like, just like, not just to make the map, but in between that, it was also all of the different, like, okay, this, in this moment, this person would be thirsty here, who would be able to help and stuff. So building empathy, building um, more knowledge of vocabulary, it, it was amazing. It was amazing. And just by using a resource, that, a real resource, a real world as scenarios. Absolutely right. And they're building emotional skills as well. <laughs> it sounds like, you know, in, in, in learning how to connect with these other people, which I think is, is really some something that in the language classroom, especially, um, that I think is very helpful, which is that we, we tend to see the other increasingly, increasingly as also ourselves. <laughs> you know, it's it's easy to imagine people in another country speaking another language is totally different from us. Yet when we get to know them, understand them, their background and who they are, all of a sudden we start to see that they're very similar to us, and uh, it makes us re refocus and, and I think often uh, change perhaps our perspective of the world. Uh, Sophia, how about you? How, how do you uh, work with these historical, political, and contemporary patterns of migration and immigration while teaching? Sure. Well, one simple thing that I like to do is remind students that Portuguese is not a language only spoken in other countries, but that Portuguese is also spoken in the United States. It's spoken on our campus, the University of Minnesota. I often invite native speakers of Portuguese who study and work in the Twin Cities to come to class. I encourage my students to meet and talk to people from Brazil and Mozambique and Portugal who live in the Twin Cities and ask them about how they ended up there. Um, so this is not as political a type of immigration, but 
each of these people has a story and students so appreciate the opportunity to use their language outside of the classroom. It's a very empowering moment when they can use their language to create a friendship or relationship with someone else on campus. So that's something I always try to encourage. Well, that's excellent. Yes, absolutely. And it shows them what resources they have to use the language to learn about the world, how they have these resources right at their fingertips on their uh, on their campus or in the town where they live. Terrific. Terrific. Uh, Catherine, what's your experience? Well, I um, focus on the topic of immigration and migration, because sometimes you have to clarify the difference between the two. And then um, the question arises, well, what were the root causes? Uh, Why do people immigrate? Where are the large number of people coming from? What's happening in those countries? And so that gets into a discussion. The majority, and I say the majority of my students were born in the United States or came very young. But when you talk about parents and grandparents, they immigrated to the country. And then you have some students who are of age and they can apply for their own citizenship. Some students and parents um, applied for the citizenship when they were infants and some didn't. And <laughs> I, I kind of wondered why if they were here, if they came and they were toddlers, why did they go this long? So I said, well, now you're going to have to do it for yourself. So you get into a lot of discussions about that. You go into the economic reasons, the frequency with which large numbers of people are immigrating. And then of course that leads to the question, citizenship questions and the questions about DACA and what was happening at the government level. And some students say, well, you know, we're, we're frightened. We don't know what to do. Uh, I told my mother, don't go out without me, stay at home because they were very nervous that, and we were nervous as teachers that we would come in and, you know, the kids would have been, the parents would have been deported. I mean, that was a fear that we had because it was so scary at one point a couple of years ago. So you had all of that going on in the classroom as we, you know, one topic led to another. So that, that, um, that was one thing that, I, frankly, I was very nervous about, that the parents, um, the students would go home and they would find because it was happening. So that was a very scary thing. I said, well, at least if they're in high school, maybe they can manage. But, um, you know, at the elementary level, that would have been just so disconcerting. But, yeah, we, we got into a lot of discussions about that and to look at the economic reasons for that. And we had a, a few students, you know, not so many, but we did have a few students who did not have their, their papers. Sure. Yeah. And I think that teaching our community in New York, I think, unfortunately, that's a common experience. And, uh, you know, we had many, I've had many DACA students. And now, unfortunately, it seems that the students can no longer apply for DACA. 
And so many of them are in precarious states at best. And so migration and immigration in the New York City area is such a tangible topic. Um, And I think especially because virtually all of our students, maybe they've either come or their parents or at most they have a grandparent who's immigrated (laughs) and that categorizes almost everyone. Um, Right. It's really quite something and timely. And I think that, you know, to, to, to mention Rosa's point um, about growing in empathy for these folks, you know, sometimes too, for some students in the classroom, it's not a question of empathy for someone you don't know. It's a question of really understanding better your own family and the different dynamics that are going on as a result of immigration and migration. Um, Sure. Absolutely. And that, that also, you know, just makes me think that one of the resources I use is YouTube because YouTube has got terrific videos for, like Rose was mentioning with Venezuelan migration throughout Latin America, um, you know, to to show students, and I've done this, you know, about, you know, traversing through Colombia, through the Darien Gap into Panama, or, you know, the some years ago came out the movie, I think, uh, La Bestia, or the documentary La Bestia, talks about the train that goes in through Mexico, you know, and it really is something to see the great efforts that people go through just to come to the United States and, and why, you know, it's uh, quite something. Um, and also, Catherine, you know, your background in Afro-Latino studies is, I think, very important. And so I, I think that, and especially in the Bronx, we have a very large population of best, uh, Afro-Latino students. Um, and so my, my question is, how can Afro-Latino studies be explored through ethnologic or ethnographic and genealogical classroom activities focusing on classroom dynamics that are authentic and engaging in light of historical and recent events, basically, like what we're saying? Yeah, well, actually, um, <laughs> what I've done over the years, you know, I I talk about the predominant groups from different Latin American countries, and sometimes that will bring in the geography. I had a, a map called um, Unwilling Immigrants. Somehow, they, one of the map makers had that years ago, and I saw it, and I, I always called it the slave trade map. But it traced, you know, with colors, countries, the European countries. And, of course, the the Dutch were very prominent, you know, in the slave trade. And I always said that little country did so much in terms of the slave trade. And they had the arrows like certain countries, Britain, Spain, Portugal, and Holland. And the arrows showed where they went in Africa and where they brought Africans into the new world. So you you had that. So I used that in the beginning to get them really, really interested in it. And I said, okay, look at, look at that color. Let's trace this. Now, where are they going? And um, so I, I would look at populations. You know, it's, of course, I had a lot of um, Dominican students and I had a lot of Mexican students. And we looked at um, Mexico, you know, what areas of Mexico would have large Black populations. And of course, Veracruz and on to the um, western part, what they called the Costa Chica, which would have been um, Oaxaca and um, and uh, over there where <laughs> where is a place that we that everybody likes to go to Acapulco. On that side, they call the, the Costa Chica, but coming in through Veracruz and in through Puebla, if you go through that section 
of Mexico, that would be your largest population. So we did a lot of map study. That's how I sort of got them hooked into the map studies and the arrows and the colors and things like that. So we talked about different areas of where the slave trade started in the new world would, would have been Española and maybe Puerto Rico second uh, in terms of dates that I could get, 1503, 1508, um, those kinds of things. And so uh, then we got probably more into ethnography in terms of the large groups of uh, Afro-Latinos and where they live. And then we moved on, we talked about, we had to talk about Brazil because the largest number, 38%, 38% went to Brazil and 50% said went to South America. The 38% of the 50 went to Brazil. So that was, um, that was a big topic. And then looking at how large geographically Brazil was, so that's why they would say, oh, we are studying geography. So I say, yeah, geography is very important. So that's how we will get, that's how I would really, really get into it and get them involved. And then we would start looking at Afro-Latinos from these various countries to learn something about them. And then we say, okay, if they live in, around the coastal areas, which most did, then what was the historical reason for that? So then they kind of got the picture, oh, that's where the Africans were introduced into the countries. And I said, well, the same is true in uh, North America as well. Sure. So that, yeah. Terrific, right? And so that way too, they also understand the, the geography of where we are and how it relates to our formation, right? As, that's right. And that's world. why geography was important. Sure, absolutely. They didn't see it, but you know. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Rosa, what is your experience? Oh, I could wait till you call my name because what she said, Catherine, <laughs> Catherine, um, I do the same that you do, but as an Afro-Latina, I am my student's first resource. <laughs> and what I'm saying is when I start talking with them, about Afro-Latinos, they already have an Afro-Latina in front of them. So I will start with my own story, with my own ancestors and the immigration so that they see like, wow, I do have a teacher that is Afro-Latina and she can tell me exactly at least how her family came. I talk to my students with the truth when I'm, when I'm teaching them. And the truth is that I let them clearly understand that uh, Afro-descendants, they didn't came here as, as an immigrant. They were forced to get here, right? So from there, they go, wow, how, what do you mean for? I thought they were immigrants. And then I clarify terms in between my students so that they go uh, with an open mind, more understanding about everything that they're going to learn of Afro-Latinos or Afro-descendants. And what I do, I also examine a contemporary and social movement in Latin America, especially those that arose from popular response to like different forms of social exclusion. So students do more research to address how race, class, and gender across all this um, dynamic between Latinos work. So what they learn is to also explore about economic, social, political, and cultural experience in between the communities of scholars, because there is something that they found 
um, very, I would say they, they, they found amazing is to learn that in between Latinos still exists the problem of races, even though if it's in between Afro-Latinos, because there is a lot of different terminology that we uh, use in, in, in between Afro-Latinos that some groups, they still do not accept that we are Black. So they call in different names and this added up to more vocabulary, to more practices and to learn understanding that Black is Black and there is not such a thing as different um, races in between Black or not races, but tons of color as some uh, Latin Americans or Afro-Latinos uh, like to use. So through realistic experiences of Latinos, what I also bring over to my classes and thank you to my good friend Akash Patel, he have a foundation, an organization called Happy World Foundation. And every week he connect me with people from different places in Latin America. And I always ask him if he could please be Afro-Latinos as well. And my students, they now have the opportunity to virtually interact with someone in any other country, Afro-Latinos. So it's not just me in the classroom just talking about myself or a YouTube video or so. Now they have it virtually in their class and have the opportunity to ask questions. And it comes like a little bit of game, but also they gaining uh, knowledge until they realize what the person is. And the reason why is because now they're going to see everyone that show up in there is Afro-Latino. Okay, now, oh my gosh, I got to ask questions to can find out where this person is. We got one that was one of the, the good ones that they, they never thought that it would be from there. And then when they find out that in a portion, in a place in Africa, there is people who speak Spanish. And this guy came from uh, Guinea Equatorial. Mm-hmm. And they thought that he was um, Brazilian. They thought that he was probably from Panama because they, they know my story and they see people in the canal and all that. And then that day they realized, wow, there is people in Africa uh, who speak Spanish. So talking with my students and teaching my, my students with, again, real world scenarios, YouTube and using all this is how I bring my Afro-Latino studies into my classes, to my lessons, and how they learn and keep them focused in what I want for them to learn, which is the language, and also to get to know more about what the world is out there. Again, sympathizing with, um, with different races, with, different, with the diversity, and have them expand their knowledge, and they will be more capable to be more tolerant to other races instead of uh, rejecting them as sometimes we see in a daily life. Right. Absolutely. And I, I think that's one of the beautiful things about our field ultimately is the more we interact with different types of people and learn different languages that we could all communicate together in the same language, we we really do realize how similar we are. <laughs> you know, it's it's a great avenue to, to overcoming stereotypes and all this other stuff is if you simply learn about the other person and learn how to speak about them. You know, all, you know, in my experience has been ultimately everyone, no matter where you are, is speaking about pretty much the same stuff, you know, families and work and health and these types of things that, that regard us all as human beings. And, you know, what you say about Equatorial Guinea is right on point. It's always uh, interesting for my students, too, and whenever I show them something from Equatorial Guinea or even for my Spanish major students, most of whom are Spanish speakers, native or heritage Spanish speakers, they're from Latin America or their parents are from Latin America. That's generally speaking the demographic of my students in the major or minor. 
and I'll show them a video <laughs> of people from Equatorial Guinea, you know, or the president of Equatorial Guinea speaking. And, and it, it, it really does blow their mind because they, they don't realize um, that, that, yes, there are Africans who speak Spanish, you know, just like you, <laughs> or just like the, their parents. And um, it really shows how the world is not always how we think it is. Um, Sophia, what's, what's your experience with, oh, I'm sorry, Catherine, you're going to say something? Yeah, I wanted to, uh, to speak about that specifically because when I was, went to Spain many years ago, that's where they, well, after they couldn't figure out if I were from, let's see, Puerto Rico, Cuba, the Dominican Republic. So you kind of figure out why they asked that. They said, oh, you must be from Guinea. I said, perhaps. <laughs> But it was just that it was mind blowing because they could not figure out where I was from. So this um, in November, I went to the expo. I went to Dubai. So I was at the expo and I went to the pavilion, the, the Equatorial Guinea Pavilion. And the lady said, oh, somebody that speaks Spanish. It was so funny that. Um, that I got that that I got that reaction. Right. And and a place like Equatorial Guinea, you know, which, you know, we always hear about uh, Cuba or Puerto Rico or the Philippines being sort of the last colonies, you know, from 1898. Uh, but Equatorial Guinea, if I'm not mistaken, became independent only in 1968. And so it was really uh, the last um, overseas, if we will, uh, colony that Spain had. Um, and, you know, similarly, you know, in the Portuguese speaking countries in Africa, many of them didn't become independent until the 1970s. And so it's, it's also a very recent discussion. Um, and, and so, Sophia, I'm wondering if, if with your experience with Afro-Latin American or maybe even simply African studies or loose African studies, I'm unsure exactly how one would term it, um, with, with your experiences. Sure. So I often find that a useful point of departure with my students has been using the transatlantic slave trade database, which has interactive animations showing 20,000 different voyages of the transatlantic slave trade of different ships. And another useful point of departure has been looking at the plans for building slave ships that were made to maximize the number of human bodies that could fit on these ships. And it's very clear from this visual uh, for the students in a very haunting way, the way in which Black Africans were commodified and um, objectified on these ships and just translated into their their worth, their financial worth. And then from that point of departure, we often then go on to look at literature, thinking about what these historical documents, this knowledge about the, the, the number of ships and the composition of slave ships can't tell, right? It can't tell us the memories of the slaves and their ancestors. It can't tell us their stories. It can't tell us what they left behind, their trauma. And that's one reason that we read fiction and literature, um, that it can fill in those gaps in the story. And we can find that in Angolan and Mozambican fiction. We can find it in fiction written by 
Afro-Brazilian writers. So I often like to start with those really haunting, factual, quantitative points of departure to then make a case for why we read literature and what types of gaps it can fill in in that history of the transatlantic slave trade. Fascinating. You know, and, and that that is very worthwhile um, in terms of an approach, uh, because you relating to what Rose was saying about growing in empathy, right? Uh, what these poor people had to negotiate is perfectly unfathomable, I think, to most of us. Um, and, and if I'm not mistaken, Catherine, you worked in um, the archives in Spain looking at some of these manifests of slaves that were brought to the New World. Is that right, Catherine? I got it. I was looking at an actual um, slave record, and the the navigator of the slave ship was Portuguese, signed off by the governor of Seville, stating where to go in Africa to pick up the Africans, where to take them in the New World. I can't even remember now, but that you, it threw me so far loop because it's one thing if you read about it, but it's another if you see the actual record. So let's just say Cuba, because, and then say what to bring back. You know, the triangle of trade. I mean, we we study that in history, in American history. But it's one thing to see the actual record and that, that funny kind of writing they did back then. And then I remember seeing a letter from, I guess, a slave master, someone in Oaxaca. And he was complaining to the crown about a runaway slave, one slave, <laughs> not groups of slaves that may have run away. And I'm thinking, this is all y'all had to do. But it was just, I, I don't know, I, I, I can't even express, it was just mind-boggling to actually see the actual record, the signatures and the numbers and that kind of thing. And I, I did put the um, General Archives of the Indies as one of the resources that you might use to download or copy some of the, um, and I was talking about primary uh, documents for your more advanced students, for them to look look at those and analyze. And that that would be a, a project within itself. Oh, absolutely. You know, and um, fascinating. Well, this is fascinating, right? And it shows just how big our fields are, how overarching mm -hmm. <laughs> they really can be. Rosa, did you have something to add? Um, I'm, I'm really happy that um, Sophia and Catherine are using all these resources. And it looked like we would be working in the same school because I also um, use the same or similar to what they are doing. Because um, when the students start to investigate how the colonization impacts identity and culture through the generations, then they start looking particularly at the historical trauma and education, because realistically, still be um, this Afro descendants being in statistics, uh, statistics, I'm sorry, as a that it just looked like, OK, because you are Afro descendant, more likely you don't going to finish high school or you are not going to college. And this is changing. So for us to have them with um, real world scenarios, the past, present, and even the future, this can make a huge impact in any student, especially the Afro-descendant students, because they will feel more identified with these lessons and see if they 
kind of like integrate themselves more into it. One of the things that surprised me was that I was having um, students that they didn't know they were Afro-descendants. Their family never talked about it until I came with the lesson. And from the lesson, my Hispanic owners, the Sociedad Honoraria Hispanica, uh, did a, a, what you call a, no, it was not a movie. It was a documental, I'm sorry, a documentary about Afro-Latinos, Afro-descendants. And that's when their parents decide to tell them the truth that they were Afro-descendants. They didn't have, let's say that the mom was uh, Mexican. Both of them were Mexican, but they didn't know that they have Afro-descendants uh, uh, in their line, in their family. And they did a documentary of their own dad um, talking about you know, where, he, where his grandma or, or great-grandma was coming. And it became something amazing that it just didn't went only here in Hawaii, it went nationwide. The how they integrate community, the community here in Hawaii, the community around United States through the documentary talking about Afro-Latinos and also asking educators to not just teach about Afro-descendants in February because it's Black History Month or in Martin Luther King Day. That is something that it should be every single day and something that students should constantly be listening about, listening about so they can, again, sympathize, learn more, and also make differences for their future. Absolutely. No, I, I think so. And, and, and again, it seems to me like a common thread of what we're talking about is how the material we're learning has direct, meaningful, and valuable um, impact on the, on the lives of our students and what they live and what they experience. And that's terrific. I know, you know, with my own uh, Dominican students, um, you know, sometimes the, the issue of race in the Dominican Republic is very delicate uh, and it's partly related to the fact that the Dominican Republic at one point had been uh, under Haitian power after the Haitians became independent and there were um, there was an incursion of the Haitians into the Dominican Republic and so on. And this has left a legacy that is conflictual. And uh, I have found that in discussing things like Af Af Afro-Latinidad uh, in the classroom, uh, that students who maybe or who see themselves as uh, Afro-Dominican, uh, that, they, that they find some real meaningful insight in, in, into understanding who they are and their family and their, their history and so on. Very good. Um, and I think too, that it's sort of a take home that I've had from the whole thing is you can't be so quick to judge, right? <laughs> all these different, because ultimately we're all the same people. Um, so here um, with, with all that we've spoken about, um, my, my question I think would be where to find resources. Some of you have already mentioned some resources which are very valuable, um, but maybe, and the question would be, um, how to find resources for exploring one's personal or cultural roots in the classroom. And are there any assignments? We've spoken about some, uh, but any assignments that you feel are, are timely, which Rose, I think you just said, uh, uh, and helpful to students. And so maybe, um, Rose, I'll, I'll build on what you were saying before and invite you to, to answer that. Yes. Uh, well, yes, I do a lot of research and throughout my, also I use a lot of my Cafecito Culturales in the Facebook group that I have for professional learning community. And then through that, I found many interesting resources to aim to explore cultural roots in my classroom, of course, including my own, like I say earlier, 
So my assignments include a sure to the point process that is helpful to students. So my students work collaboratively on research projects designed to explore the, the rich and diverse culture of Afro-Latinos across the Americas. And also um, we, it's just a constant interaction. So I don't go through too much into uh, print out papers and fill in the blank and stuff like that. They is more as what they can present of what is their findings, how they work in groups collaboratively, how uh, creating stuff that represent what their understandings are about what they studying in Afro Latinos, more likely to be um, stuff like that, that I generally use in my classes. Terrific. Uh, Catherine, how about you? What resources have you been using or are you familiar with? I usually do a lot of projects. I have them do biographical projects. Um, in addition to doing, say, a biographical study of someone, I've, I've had people come into the classroom, uh, elected officials, and discuss what they're doing. They can see, I don't get into, well, he's, he's Afro-Hispanic because it's obvious, but I want them to see what they're doing, how successful they've been. Because one, um, he, he's a uh, congressman now, uh, Adriana Espaillat, he, he had mentioned that he was a child when he came here, maybe nine years old or something, and what he has achieved. I like for them to do the projects, to get together in groups, and um, but I want them to hear people talking to them so they can see what they can be. And the other, um, I was thinking about you know, differentiation and what types of projects they could do. Cause I like, I like um, poetry and then you can have some literary, but I like poetry, something they can understand. Then I like the analyzing at some point in my, when I was teaching at another school, I downloaded the decree of abolition from certain countries like let's say Venezuela, Colombia, and, and I think Ecuador. I think they, the slaves were freed in 1854, you know, the same year. And i like for them to look at that. And this would be a more advanced class and have them compare that between the Emancipation Proclamation. All the things that were listed that former slaves should get when they are freed, because some of the decrees said you had to wait eight years or six years or something like that. And so what, what did we get here? You know, never got that 40 acres and a mule. But anyway, and I would like to do a comparison just to know that yes, you had slavery there. And uh, most of them are not aware of that unless they came here as adults. But if they came here as children, they wouldn't have probably studied a lot of history. So I like exposing them to the facts. Like you said, the whole thing with the Haitian Dominican Republic. I mean, that's a big discussion. And I, you know, I've even said, well, you're celebrating uh, liberation from Haiti. Then what happened after that? So they don't, they don't know. I said, well, you know, you're recolonized by Spain and therefore re-enslaved. So then I bring in Gregorio Luperon because he fought against the recolonization. But 
the children, you know, most of them don't even know that. I said, well, you know, the Haitians were trying to keep you from being re-enslaved, trying to save you from yourself. But it's another issue. So you get into more deep discussion. So when I say the, um, you know, do some advanced research, because how I would start out the project, I would do, say, the African presence in, say, Mexico. Or I may say Argentina, somebody was thinking Argentina society back in the 1700s. And then I would do a bulletin board. Oh, I had the, the, the great bulletin boards and posters and things to showcase uh, these people. And then I would have the students to do reports. And, and I did one on gastronomy one time. And I had the student report on how similar the Africans who lived in uh, Bolivia, how similar the diet was to say other parts of Latin America and the Caribbean. And that was amazing because, you know, until I had them do it, I didn't know it myself. So I would try to choose topics, very topics, because nobody thinks of black people being in Bolivia. So right. that, that was another thing I'd do. And that's what I would have to do. But when I say the analyzing primary documents, that's what I'm thinking about, like the slave records from Sevilla and um, the, the September issue of the Spanish magazine had a very good article on a walking tour of Sevilla, the, African, the areas where the Africans lived. And you see, people don't talk about that because you, you talk about slavery in the Americas, but you don't talk about slavery in, in Spain and Portugal. Sure. And up until 1520, the Africans were supplied to the New World from Sevilla and, and, and uh, Lisbon. So that, that could be a starting point because a lot of people don't realize. So when the, the explorers came, they were African, they'd been in Spain, maybe, maybe a generation. So Africans were on those ships with them. So sometimes I've had projects on the explorers as well, just to vary it a bit, you know, just to, to have students learn a variety of information. So mm -hmm. those are some, and then I do have a, a list of resources as well, but I'll give somebody else a chance to talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, very good. No, very good, Catherine. And Rose, I know you've added uh, some things to me in the chat here. Maybe you'd like to just say a couple of things about it. Uh, yes, it was just um, that um, I use Google Earth as one of my resources. And through Google Earth, the students can um, go more deep into any specific country or any country that they choose to work on. And we go beyond just to find out like where where are these groups or also what did they eat? Uh, what is the education? If they got business, how did the economic for them into that country in particular? So it's been very, very good uh, resource, especially when it was the pandemic and the students were just online. Uh, the headache was like how to keep them engaged, right? So I find out that by using Google Earth, they love all that 3Ds and going in between all that and find um, more information of what they were learning. I would just want to add that, that we was using um, Google Earth as well um, for 
virtually find Afro-Latinos in Latin America, including food, dance, everything about culture as well. Perfect. Terrific. Absolutely. And, and Sophia, what's your experience? And I know we, we've, we're specializing, it sounds like, in a conversation about Afro-Latin American cultures, but um, in, even just in terms of migration and immigration as well. Uh, Sophia, what, what's your experience? Sure. Well, Rosa and Catherine had excellent examples. And I'll add just one more, which I like to do, where I sometimes ask my students to bring in an object. I really like bringing physical objects into the classroom. So I ask them to bring in an object that reminds them of one of their grandparents. And then in pairs, they have to describe their object and its importance and why it reminds them of their grandparents. And, you know, even if they've never met one of their, any of their grandparents, there might still have something that reminds them of the stories they've heard about their grandparents from um, a parent. And then as an added challenge, I'll ask the other person in the pair to describe the colleague's object because it's so much harder to talk about something that, that you've heard about because you have to process all that language and reproduce it and you don't have as much time with the vocabulary as if it had been your own object. But I find that the students are very curious about the objects that come into the classroom. They like passing them around and touching them. There's something so visceral about a real thing with a past and a smell and a a history. And Alan, as you mentioned before, often our students have stories that we don't know about or that we couldn't know about. And they can then choose to tell us something about their family story through these objects. So often the students feel closer to one another afterward and they feel like they their identity is, is better known in the classroom and it can increase a sense of community. And they don't need very much language ability to be able to talk about an object. I usually have used it when we're doing family vocabulary. Sure, well, that's fascinating. And, and I'm guessing, Sophia, that they're doing that in Portuguese, is that right? Yes. And, it, and also in my department, it's very, very popular to use story maps in our Spanish classrooms using very uh, pretty basic GIS software. So that's another thing that is, is quite common in my department in our Spanish classrooms. So using, do, making a map and then having a story connected to that map to deepen your knowledge of one place in Latin America or Spain. Terrific. Well, terrific. And, and you know, it, it sounds to me too, because, you know, it's easy for us to talk about, again, you know, immigrants or migrants and sometimes a, a way that we don't fully identify with them. But if we start talking about our grandparents, like you did, Sophia, I think that in this country, and you know, virtually everyone's grandparents are from somewhere else, even if it's just a different city or state, or at least one of them. And uh, it, it really does help us understand sort of how, I don't know, I think the more things change, the more they stay the same. Rosa, did you have something to add? For the upper levels of languages, what I do, I work in collaboration with other teachers and we try to find more resources. We also make phone calls to um, CNN Alana and we have a reporter uh, from Puerto Rico, Rebecca mm-hmm. Perez Arocho. She, she was wonderful giving us the time for the students to have this conversation with her about immigration, about what is to be a, she's not Afro-Latina, but just a Latino in this um, television show, uh, uh, being a reporter, and they were asking her an amazing amount of questions, and were able to this to um, 
to go deep into more about her, about uh, how do you do that? How do if you know the language barrier or anything? This this type of resources like that by bringing over speakers, but also have the students to write letters and ask people out there, reporters, TV producers, or anybody that they were like also bring them over to be more engaged in classes. And um, this one, like the last one that we made um, is a, a conversation with CNN reporter about, about being professional, being Latino, the, the language barriers or no barriers, how does she progress and what they asked her, give us, give us an advice, what we should have learned another language. What is the importance of learning a second language so that they can grow the message out there because they was recording the whole conversation as well. Terrific. Well, good. Very good. I think that all sounds terrific. And uh, again, you know, for me personally, one of the resources I enjoy the most, be it personally or in the classroom, is YouTube. Because you, really, whatever it is, or Google Maps, you know, Rossi mentioned Google Maps. I think between those two things, <laughs> we can often find, and maybe Google Images as well, um, you know, th really interesting resources, be it for me, be it for my students. And, uh, I, you know, it's it's way of, you know, teaching, I think, in many ways is storytelling and in outside of mechanical things that we're learning. Um, no. Yeah. Catherine? Yeah, I would like to say that sometimes when we were talking, speaking of storytelling, uh, when we were talking about slavery and the slave trade and those kinds of things, so... I said to them, I said, well, you know, my great grandmother was a slave as a child. Mm. And it was like, well, Miss Scott, were you a slave? I said, no. <laughs> I said, let's get the dates correct. I said, no, I wouldn't have been. But I can relate to somebody who was because she lived so long and she would tell those stories. And um, so when we we're talking about that, I said, it happened here. And it happened in, you know, the other countries. So then that's why I was saying it's very important to look at. But, you know, like I said, you'd have to have a more advanced level to have to analyze the decree of abolition. I, I really enjoyed doing that. I, I found it so fascinating. And, you know, what was promised and what should have been. But I could tell them, you know, and I could tell them certain things that, we couldn't do it. Certain things I couldn't do growing up in Virginia, certain places I couldn't go. And I said, then you don't, you can't relate to that at all. <laughs> I said, because everything was fixed. And you, if you can't go to a restaurant, it's maybe because you don't have any money, but not you have the money and then you can't go in. And I, um, I had a list of, uh, I wanted to mention one of the resources that I had that, Henry Louis Gates did the CD Black in Latin America. I I'm wondering if you're familiar with that. I'm not. Yeah, he did that some years ago. And I use that a lot because he touched on several, several countries. He did Peru, a, um, Dominican Republic, Haiti, Cuba, and Mexico. And, and Mexico was... Um, it was a lot in Mexico, but you know, it was interesting that the quite a few Mexican students were Afro-Mexican. So they were quite aware of their, you know, African culture. Cause I, they walk in and I said, well, what, what state are you from? Get it all? <laughs> or, um, 
you know, are you from Acapulco? Like, you from Oaxaca? And most of the time, I guessed it because I'd been there. So, you know, it wasn't anything. They say, yeah, yeah, Miss Scott, we know. So it wasn't, it wasn't a big issue at all. And uh, it seemed like more and more Afro-Mexican kids were coming into the classroom, say, from the time I started to the time I finished teaching. And that's one of the, the resources. This is a CD. You can get it from the um, Channel 13. That I think I ordered mine from there. And, of course, the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. And hopefully one day we'll go as a group. And I put the Library of Congress, Hispania Magazine, and the General Archives of the Indies in uh, Seville. I remember I had to take get a permit and take a picture to go in. And how I found out about it, it was in the Fromer's Travel Guide when I, I went to Spain. I haven't been but once. I haven't been since 1972. But that's where I got the information from. And... Um, then I, I went in and then there was a professor who, who died a couple of years ago. I had met him, say, the year before, and he was there doing research on slavery in Mexico. And I thought that was just so interesting. I walk in and then I see someone that, that I know. So I just wanted to share those, you know, in case you didn't, um, hadn't heard, wasn't aware of what Henry Louis Gates, I know he does the genealogy thing, everybody, knows him from that, but he produced a CD. And that was quite helpful because he had pictures, it filmed, he had, you know, information um, that the students could use and they could visual, you know, what's a visual for them. Terrific. Well, excellent. Thank you, Catherine. And, and you know, it's insightful just how many resources we have at our fingertips that really are either depend on interrelation relations with people we've met or know by chance or happen to be from different places or things that are absolutely free online or or what have you. Excellent. And so I think maybe at this point, um, I would just ask our panelists if there's anything further maybe that we haven't discussed. I know we focused, our conversation ended up focusing a lot on uh, Afro-Latin American cultures, which is certainly timely and interesting. Um, but really about anything, if there's anything at all that, that you all would like to add, I know uh, certainly, Sophia, your uh, American Portuguese Studies Association is having a conference coming up with a title uh, or a theme of the conference that's very relevant, I think, to our discussion here today. Uh, maybe, Sophia, we'll start with you. Do you have anything further that you'd like to add? Well, I want to say thank you. It, I have been honored to be a part of this. And yes, the American Portuguese Studies Association is having a conference in October with the topic of genealogies, which is timely for our association because since the start of the pandemic, we've lost a lot of renowned scholars in our field. So it the conference will give us an opportunity to celebrate their lives and to think about the ways in which our own ways of thinking and ways of being as people and scholars have been influenced by their mentorship. So it's just one other way to think about genealogy, a person's own academic genealogy of how they learned to think the way they do and study the topics they do because of those who have been able to mentor them. Sure. Absolutely. Well, that sounds like a terrific uh, conference, and it's coming up in Utah. Is that right, Sophia? Yes, it's at Brigham Young University. 
All right, in October. So that's the American Portuguese Studies Association. So if anyone listening would like to join you at the conference, it's certainly a great opportunity to learn further about all this. Um, and yeah, right, our, our academic lives are a different family, right, in a different way. <laughs> it's true. Uh, Rosa, uh, have you got anything further that you'd like to add? Um, yes, thank you so much. And uh, I really want to thank you for the opportunity to be here today. This is my first podcast and it had been an amazing experience. But um, I would like to say that um, that is important and is extremely necessary that educators highly consider integrating culture, diversity, equality, and inclusion in their classes. And the reason why I'm saying this is because it provides a rich and engageable lessons to their students. This will help to incorporate culture to create a intellectual space for students to engage through research, um, course words, discussion panels, workshop, everything that we have mentioned in here today. And also um, more likely for the diaspora of Afro-descendants. So I would like to invite everyone to please uh, incorporate this in, their in, in your classes. And also if they say, well, probably uh, how I can find these resources or I don't have resources like that, how, who can help me? So that's one of the reasons why I create the POC Culture and Diversity Group. I invite everybody to join in Facebook and also they can follow us in YouTube at Culture and Diverse, POC Culture and Diversity TV. But thank you sure. so much for having me here today. Excellent, Rosa, thank you. And Catherine, is there anything further that you'd like to add? I think I've said everything in it as well. It's my first podcast, so it's, it's been exciting to do. And I hope that I've shared a lot of information. And it's a little um, difficult to get other people to share your enthusiasm of what you're doing, because I could see all kinds of ways that I could work together with other teachers. Sometimes they would go along and I said, well, what are you covering related to uh, Latin America that we could cooperate on? But they, they, they weren't that excited about doing it. Sometimes I could get other teachers to do it. That's something we need to, to work on, the interdisciplinary uh, teaching. And I think that would help students in other disciplines as well. They might be having difficulty in another course. And if we would do more of that, but see people are so rigid and worried about passing the regents. Sometimes I teach something and they say, well, what does that have to do with the regions? I said, but you have to learn beyond the regions. I say, it has everything to do with it because it will teach you to think. But um, that's, that might be something that we might want to do, focus on a more interdisciplinary approach to teaching and learning. Sure, right, not just the region's exams. I agree, I agree, yeah. absolutely. Well, okay. terrific. No, and I and I agree. It's important to kind of see the big picture and everything we do. I think ultimately that's the challenge, right? That's <laughs> right. It's certainly what makes it more enjoyable, anyhow. <laughs> yeah, right. it makes it more interesting. That's right. Good. So, a very strong thank you to Sophia, Rosa, and Catherine for your terrific conversation during our podcast. As well, once again, thanks to Professor Marily Bierman, Dr. Liliana Soto Fernandez, Dr. Bernie Lopez, or Mr. Bernie Lopez. Mr. Francisco Garcia Quesada, and Ms. Rosani Hanel of our AATSP Metropolitan New York Chapter Podcast. Thank you also 
to all of you listeners at home for joining us during this podcast. Please also be sure to visit our website at aatspmetny.org. And once again, my name is Alan Hartman from Mercy College in Dobbs Ferry, New York. And if you would like to reach me for any reason, my email address is ahartman.aatspmetny at gmail.com. Of course, I'd be very pleased to speak with you. If you are a teacher of Spanish or Portuguese, please come and join us at the American Association of Teachers of Spanish and Portuguese, or in Sofia's case, the American <laughs> Association of Portuguese Studies, the American Portuguese Studies Association, but certainly AATSP as well. Um, there are AATSP chapters throughout the country, and our metropolitan New York chapter is eager to welcome those of you who live in the New York City metropolitan area. You can find out more about AATSP at aatsp.org. And we thank AATSP for supporting our work with the AATSP Metropolitan New York Chapter Podcast. Lastly, I would also like to very strongly thank Vans Beats for the music that you heard during this podcast. Thank you all once again. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast if you have not yet done so and to get ready for our upcoming podcast this summer. Gracias, obrigado, and see you next time.